And those conversations are going to be happening in corporate spaces, just like they're going to be happening in political spaces and you know, communities of faith and families. So business leaders really need to be prepared to, to have, be intentional about how those conversations happen. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that suggestion comes from Misha Brown, the president of PCI Media Impact, who joins this show to suggest we make room for uncomfortable conversations. So in today's episode, Brown communicates what she's learned from developing large transformational public campaigns and how you can develop a narrative that shifts society. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Misha Brown. Enjoy. All right, well, let's get the show on the road then. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, I think yeah, uh, all the followers will get notified. People will join in. You know, they'll kind of say like where they're from, things like that. Yeah, we got one person coming in from St. John. Misha, can we see you? Now you're coming back. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm here. Misha, where are you from exactly? I am from Midland, Texas. It's uh, western Texas, about a five-hour drive from Dallas-Fort Worth. That's right. That was was that the uh, the arch rival of uh, Friday Night Lights? Yes. Oh, yes. You're from Midland. I am from, from Friday Midland? Night Lights. <laughs> I'm from Midland. <laughs> Booby Miles, you from Midland, huh? <laughs> so That's me, me, Misha. Before the show, we were talking. Now you're relocated because of COVID to Miami, Florida. How's that been for your team? Well, you know, the entire team has been working remotely since March of last year, like many teams around the world. And I have to say the team has been phenomenal. Uh, You know, we do a lot of remote work anyway um, because of the international nature of the work that we do at PCI Media. But uh, we're all taking it in stride and, and learning how to function in a new world. And I am enjoying the sunshine while some of my teammates are getting a lot of snow. I'm sure you are. Now, that's interesting. Uh, International. Now, for people listening to this for the first time, maybe give them a background about what PCI Media is and and kind of the work that you do. Yeah, definitely. So I love to tell this story. PCI Media was started by a pedagogue, you know, an educator, a politician and a preacher. Uh, the pedagogue uh, was Albert Bandura. The uh, uh, politician was uh, Indira Gandhi. Um, and the preacher was David Poindexter, who was our founding president. And basically, uh, the three of them, together with a guy named Miguel Sabido, who worked at Telemundo for, Telemundo for many years, uh, came upon this idea that you could really use Uh, television in particular, or media in any way, to really educate and elevate the quality of life for people, and PCI Media was born. Now, here's an interesting, like, narrative. We'll be talking a lot about narratives today. A lot of people may have some problems with that, Misha. It's like, okay, Mm. you're using major broadcast channels to kind of disrupt you know, communities, and some may even say it's, they're scary because it could be propaganda, but PCI Mm -hmm. Media has a a different approach. What's that approach like overseas, especially? 
Yes. I mean, you know, I love the work that we do at PCI Media because it really is doing this work, which uh, is really important and sacred and needs to be handled very carefully in a way where we do it in full partnership with the communities in which we work. So we never do any work alone. We always work with a coalition of partners. Uh, we have technical partners uh, that are subject matter experts in whatever social issue we're working on because we bring the communications expertise, but we work with a great range of partners that bring technical expertise in early marriage and sexual and reproductive health and environmental conservation. And we also work with local production teams and local community groups that really understand the culture, the aims of the community. Uh, and really what we're doing is co-creating these narratives that make the space for change together. So let's stick to an example. You mentioned early marriage. Like, explain to me, like, what's the process behind this and how do you change something that's, you know, been so normal to culture for, for generations? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, Kevin, that's a really uh, important thing to underscore is that when we're talking about change, you know, I'm a big believer that there are very few real villains in the world, you know, and uh, really appreciate uh, an empathetic approach to people changing. And really what you're talking about is asking people to reflect on what has been normalized in their culture and make that shift. Um, so in the case of early marriage, we have a beautiful production that we've been doing with UNICEF and the government of Mozambique in Mozambique for the last six years. It's called Oro Negro, uh, Black Gold. And this long running radio drama, most popular in the country, uh, it takes on lots of different issues, child marriage being one of them. And so basically at the beginning of every season, we bring together these uh, design workshops where different stakeholders and experts come together and really develop the narrative arcs uh, that are going to guide the show. And so you have people you know, saying, what is this character going to do? What are the big issues? Uh, production happens and we air these shows on the radio uh, all across Mozambique, 116 radio stations across the country, and also some television air, and in pre-COVID, uh, also street theater, so that everybody can engage. Misha, every story, or I guess what makes a good story for me, is being able to see yourself in that main character. And so if you're trying to have some type of transformation, a villain, someone to overcome, what's the process that you all use to develop that character development line? So Miguel Sabido, we're still really grounded in the Sabido-like method, uh, really gave us the gift of thinking about these three types of characters that really, as you say, Kevin, uh, can allow people to see themselves. So one is the positive character, uh, otherwise known as the goody two-shoes, you know, the hero. Uh, the, the other is the negative character. And this is the character that's not going to make the best choices, you know, um, you know, the tough guy, the villain. And then there's the transitional character. And most of the time, this is the character that the audiences really connect with. Hmm. Because, you know, we are all transitional. We're all trying to figure out uh, the best way to live our lives. And so watching the journey of that transitional character as they interact with the positive characters and the negative characters is really where the heart of the stories are. So uh, 
for a few examples that you've shared with me in the past, you said, you know, I don't know if there has been too many negative consequences, but what were some of the unintended consequences that maybe have come from a few of your projects? Unintended consequences. Well, I mean, I think sometimes we are surprised at how much this work resonates with people. Mm. Um, you know, because we try to make the shows really entertaining, right? That's the first rule. It needs to be something that people want to watch, something that people are dying, you know, to hear every night on the radio. But we are taking on important issues. So, for example, you know, we've just wrapped a very exciting uh, sh uh, show, the first season of a show in Somaliland on uh, small arms safety of, you know, all topics, which is a huge issue in post-conflict areas. And, you know, who would think that people want to call in and talk about gun safety? But they do. So they listen to this radio show and they're watching the journey of all of these characters as they deal with the consequences of something that's very real in their communities. And they're calling in and they're saying, yes, I recognize, yes, I recognize myself. Yes, this is a problem. Let's figure out how to deal with it. It's incredible the response that we get. Okay, so hold on one second. In Somalia, it's radio. Somaliland. Somaliland. It's radio. It's not yeah. video. Interesting. No. Okay, so how do you determine the channel that's going to most effectively, you know, cause this transformation for that that audience and that population? So, Kevin, you know, radio is the number one uh, source of entertainment. Uh, channel in the world like radio is top dog and it can get really surprising and even in the u.s where we tend to think that other channels uh of information are, are primary but radio is still really strong and we saw in covid there was actually a 20 percent uptick in the u.s in radio listenership so just to put it in in perspective uh so really what determines for us the channels that we use to reach our audiences are where our audiences already are. So if they listen to radio, we want to be on the radio. Hmm. If they listen to radio and fall, have a strong social media habit, like most of us, we want to do radio and social. And in places where people are uh, watching lots of TV, uh, like in Bangladesh, we're working uh, with UNICEF on a show, Ichidana, which is about girls empowerment and education. And so we're on television there. So it really depends on where is the audience that we want to reach? We want to meet them where they are. It's incredible work and transformational work. Now, PCI Media Impact, if I go to any impact conference, someone's going to be there asking about measurements. How do you measure something like this? Is it possible <laughs> to do something like this? So it is possible. And it's really complex. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we always wish is that, you know, more people were interested in investing the resources to really measure and better understand right. how this happens. And, you know, I could name a long list of beautiful researchers that we work with and have worked with over the years that have helped us to understand our impact and how what we do works. So at PCI Media, we think about change in three big buckets. First, we think about what is called cap change. And forgive me for getting a little technical here. So 
CAB stands for Knowledge, Attitudes, and Practices, sometimes called CAB, Knowledge, Attitudes, and Behavior. And this is like the gold standard of social and behavior change communication work. We really want to see are people changing uh, what they know? Are their knowledge bases improved? Are they feeling differently about issues? Uh, so, for instance, do more people after watching Ichidana in Bangladesh feel that marrying their girls early is wrong or inappropriate, right? We want to see that attitude change. And ultimately, we want to see changes in behavior. We want to see more girls in Bangladesh finishing school um, and going off to higher education before they marry. That's what we want to see in the world. But at PCI Media, we also think that two other elements of change are important. The first is community. Are we, through our work, building constituencies of individuals and organizations that understand how to work together more effectively on an issue. Mm -hmm. So this is a big reason why we really are devoted to this participatory process, right? So if you partner with PCI Media, we are really working together and we are, we're all going to work together to make it happen. And the second is capacity. We understand how to do something very special in the world, and we're very interested in helping the organizations that we work with understand how to use it better themselves. So we really think about change in all of those ways. So for business owners listening to this, when we think about change, change within your organization and change with outside your organization, what are some key things that you can apply from your experiences with storytelling that it's very intricate and transformational in these local areas to a business environment? So the first thing I would say is that don't underestimate how narrative impacts the way that people behave. Hmm. Whenever people are doing something, there is a story in their mind. It's running like a movie, Kevin. We're like all producers, right? Like we, we are producing our lives. And there's a story running in our brains that is telling us what we should do and should not do, right? Um, and then the second thing I would say is don't assume everyone is playing the same movie in their mind. Okay, so I want to tell you this story. So I have already said that we do these uh, design workshops. And this time we were in Tanzania and we were doing a co-creation workshop for a show about uh, bushmeat conservation. So to me, bushmeat means the big five, like let's not eat rhinos, elephants, um, you know, I'm forgetting the other species, but you know, the big uh, um, animals on the African plains. Big animals, yeah. Exactly. So we're like day three in the workshop and bush meat this and bush meat that. And on day three, I will never forget, uh, one of the local gentlemen stood up and said, you know, I just have a question. So are we saying that we want people to become vegetarians? And we were, we were like, of course not. You know, we just don't want people killing the, the big game animals. And he said, well, you have to understand that to us, all meat comes from the bush. All meat is bush meat. So bush meat as a term doesn't have the same meaning for us as it does for you as in a conservation uh, context. 
And so we had to stop and think about what is other language we can use? Because when, when I say bushmeat, I know what I'm thinking, right? And if you could see our little thought bubbles, I have one picture and he has another. And uh, you could see how things could get a little confused in implementation if we hadn't had the opportunity to negotiate that meaning. So in a business context as well, so many organizations are focused also on stakeholders, maximizing stakeholder value, taking into account the community that they serve, the customers that they serve. What can, mm-hmm. what can one apply to this in terms of outreach, understanding, surveys yeah. to understand their customer better? Yeah, definitely. Exactly where my mind is going. Mm-hmm. You know, really digging deep on stakeholder engagement. And, you know, it's something that we do very well at PCI Media and all of our productions. And I think there is stakeholder engagement as lip service, you know, um, having the meetings, sending out the survey. And then there's stakeholder engagement that is really uh, designed in a way so that the decision makers can really listen. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to change the ultimate decision, right? So I think, you know, business is getting rid of that fear. Like, you know, there are times when you have a product that you want to offer, or there is a plan that will be implemented. But understanding how stakeholders are really feeling and orienting to it can create the space for more human-centered design and, you know, for a better approach forward. And So I think really thinking about stakeholder engagement is something that is authentic and not just checking the box. I think you made such a clear point with, you know, it's always a different movie in someone else's head, right? Like, what are some things that, you know, it's just so difficult to see for yourself as a business owner? Say you have 50 to 100 employees in your organization and you're not thinking about kind of what's going on within your environment. You know, what are some things you can do and what are some things also that are happening, you know, within our borders that you think uh, we could really have a a deep change in 2021? So let me just give you a a tiny example, you know, just personally, you know, as, as someone running a business about, you know, stakeholder engagement internally and really making the space to listen. You know, we, we've been working on our teaming structures, right? We're all virtual, it's a new world, and trying to just get the just right mix of how much time we're spending with each other in team meetings and making space for other things. So, you know, a couple of days ago, we had a, a, an all-team meeting. Teams from all around the world are on, different time zones, you know, different languages. And we were really having this conversation about our meeting schedule. And someone from Mozambique said, well, you know, 10 a.m. for you is the end of the day for us. So as we're thinking about how often we're going to have this meeting, one of the things you need to think about is that for us, it's always the end of the day. Right. Different movies, right? Different. And so really making the space for people to say those kinds of things that are inconvenient, that because I've been running my decision making on the information that is top of mind for me you know, is is the work that we really need to do. And Kevin, this brings me to this point about, you know, what is going on in the U.S., right, internally in our borders. And I think making space for inconvenient conversations Mm. has, I mean, it has been the battle cry of 2020, and it is not going to let up in 2021. 
elaborate on that a little bit. So, you know, beginning with COVID, of course, and then continuing on with the Black Lives Matter movement, really, you know, spilling out into all of society in ways that it had not before and that no one predicted. Uh, even looking to what happened uh, at the Capitol a few days ago, uh, these are inconvenient conversations. They make all of us uncomfortable in some way. But what we cannot do is not push past uh, that discomfort and make space for these conversations. And, you know, to the earlier point, you know, in ways where we're really listening, because no one is going anywhere. You know, we, we all live in this country uh, where we all love this country. We all want to make it better. And, you know, so it's like the only way out is through. And, uh, and those conversations are going to be happening in corporate spaces, just like they're going to be happening in political spaces and, you know, communities of faith and families. So business leaders really need to be prepared to, to have, be intentional about how those conversations happen. Where do you think, like, the main change comes from? Is it the leader themselves? who's in that organization that needs to find that new perspective? Like, you know what I mean? Like, where do you see throughout this equation the actual change happening and sustaining? So I, I always think about, it is a huge question. It's a huge question. Um, I always think about communities as organisms. Um, you know, so if we think about ourselves, we function as a whole organism. So everything is healthy or it's not. And, you know, you always hear people tell these stories about like when they break, break their pinky toe skiing or something. And they say, who would have thought this little toe <laughs> would cause such issues, right? And it's one of those things. So either everyone is experiencing the change or they're not. I do think leadership sets the tone. But I think that in order for change to be sustainable, it really needs to be authentically owned by an organization. Mm. And that is that's hard work, uh, but it's something that uh, really needs to be committed to. It's funny you brought that up about the pinky toe. Uh, I was telling you earlier, I, you know, I got a nice surfing this morning and like surfing, you have like the craziest injuries like you'll never think of. It's, it will be a broken pinky. It will be a, you know, a broken toe, a bruise, an ankle sprain. But I think like those are the things by feeling uncomfortable, getting crashed by waves that only are going to make you better. So when you talk about those tough conversations to have, we went through a really tough 2020. I think it's only going to make people better. How do you have those difficult conversations and how do you start one within your own organization? Well, you know, it's, it's so funny that you ask because we're actually in the process of having our own difficult conversation right mm -hmm. now. We're, uh, you know, after uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, the first wave of them last year, you know, we actually did send out we actually had a meeting uh, and discussed as a team and said, you know, what do we want to do? And really the conclusion that we came to is the first thing that we want to do is evaluate ourselves and do some soul checking about each of us as individuals and our organization. And so we are um, about to embark on what we're calling our race and racism workshops and really explore uh, this 
set of issues because, you know, it really race and racism is something that permeates society. And, you know, I have to like give a huge shout out to my team, them really being with a lot of them saying there are things about this that I don't understand enough. Hmm. And I really want to educate myself and, and learn. And there are some things that I feel very uncomfortable about and I need the space to be able to do that. And so, you know, just making the space for those conversations to be able to happen. And, you know, you have to put bumpers on the lane. Uh, you know, we're, we're still a company and, and, you know, people have to come to work and relationships need to be, uh, you know, professional. But we also have to understand, as Bill Hooks says, that we should be able to bring our whole selves wherever we are. And we want to make the space for that to happen. Misha, do you believe that businesses play, you know, a large role in, let's just say, uh, racial injustice movement? Like, where, where do you see the private sector's role, you know, in this transformation in, in this movement? So, you know, businesses are, are part of the social fabric. So in just a very basic way, yes, we all play a role in the narrative that plays itself out, right? I think, you know, where businesses can really do better about this is thinking about the narratives that drive their behavior, who they do business with, who their vendors are, who they hire, who they promote. And there are a lot of organizations that are doing this work and really looking at the trend data because the data will tell you, you know, uh, what you where what you value, where you're investing your time and energy and talent, and so I do think that it is incumbent upon all businesses to reflect uh, and see what's happening. Um, the other thing I will say, Kevin, is that I think business has the power to understand that just because things are the way they are now doesn't mean they have to remain that way. Mm. And so a lot of times you'll hear from business leaders and, you know, I run up against it myself uh, as a leader, you know, well, I would do this thing, except I can't because there's this obstacle. Mm. And, you know, businesses can be agents for change. Like we can really change the marketplace. And if nothing else has taught us this, COVID has. One day we all went to our offices and commuted lots of hours and, you know, did that. And now lots and lots of us are working from home and uh, not traveling as much as we were before. And still, there's a lot that's functioning. Yeah, Misha, I think your answer from the very beginning holds true about the narrative. If you can change the narrative and then, you know, the behaviors will follow, the actions will follow, the perspective, right? So in, in a context like this, you know, how have you tried to approach a narrative change within your organization? Wow. Yeah. It's, um, you know, so I have to say I'm such a um, systems and structures person. I really love okay. for everything to be quite orderly. And uh, so one of the things I think is, has been really helpful for the team is changing the story about why we do the things we do. Right. So one of the things that, you know, we are known for at PCI is being nimble and flexible, which is great. 
right? <laughs> but we also want to understand the story behind why we're nimble and flexible. Otherwise you have complete chaos. And so, right? And so it's just about helping everybody uh, have the same, you know, basically outline in their head when they're thinking about why we make certain decisions and why we don't. And again, Kevin, I just keep coming back to this importance of, of dialogue. You know, we like to say that content is only as powerful as the conversation that it mm. creates. Mm. So that's why we make all of these television and radio shows and produce these big social media campaigns. It's so people can come together and talk about things with a common framework that they didn't have before. Because it's in those conversations that meaning is negotiated that people can reorient their own perception, as you were saying, and perspective, uh, and then think about how they can behave differently. That's where the magic is. Now, these conversations are also difficult. We've talked about this. These conversations need to be difficult. Are there anything that, is there anything that you try to avoid within these conversations that, okay, we're not going to touch this? Well, I mean, we, you sort of can't because, you know, we don't screen our callers, <laughs> right? So you, people call in and they talk about what they want to talk about. I will never forget uh, during the Ebola outbreak, we were maybe three or four months in and uh, there was some initial guidance from the CDC at that point about men who had survived Ebola needed to make sure that they wore condoms for three months after they recovered because Ebola might still be transmitted through sexual intercourse. Mm. And people called in and, you know, there were all sorts of other prevention messages, but people really wanted to talk about this. This is what they wanted to talk about. You know, were the people who came up with this guidance crazy? Didn't we understand what the HIV rates were already? This already tells you people are having unprotected sex. So, you know, on the one hand, that's a really uncomfortable conversation. On the other hand, you want to make space for people to say things that we weren't thinking about because people are going to tell you what they need. They're going to tell you where their point of confusion is, where their point of resistance is. Mm. And then you can be responsive. Um, so I think one of the things we try to avoid is uh, censorship, I would say. We also try to, to avoid uh, perpetuating um, seemingly harmless, but never really uh, stereotypes about people. So we do a lot of work in the design workshop to make sure that these biases that exist in every culture about certain groups do not find themselves reflected in the content we create. So women are represented well as full human beings. So it doesn't mean that all of the women are positive characters, you know, but it does mean that we're not going to uh, um, perpetuate this notion that, you know, if a woman is independent and runs her own business and speaks up, that somehow she's a troublemaker and, and not to be trusted, for example. Right. Like what, what type of culture then do you believe is, is a, a good, um, way to have your employees speak up about things that are going on within a community, like within their, their culture, within their organization. Do, do you have a system at PCI media where 
you have an open line of communication where some something like that can happen because i gotta tell you and i'll share a quick story right after this um but uh yeah do, do you believe in a culture like that and and how do you run PCIB mm -hmm. impact so so i do think it's a mix of things right it's a mix of structures and avenues for people uh to talk to the people they need to talk to so i have a completely open door policy okay. and anytime there's a new uh, policy or procedure set in place or a decision that's been made you know we always talk about it as a team so there's a team conversation about it a team presentation and at the end of those conversations i always say my door is open if you have any other questions you can come directly to me but then i understand that people may not want to come directly to me so i say but and or talk to anybody else you might want to talk to and they might come to me mm. so so we really just want to make it very clear and transparent and of course depending on the size of the organization the, those structures and flows for communication might be different but i do think every leader can provide some avenue for everyone to speak directly to them mm. i think the other thing that i really think is important uh, to create this uh, culture of authentic dialogue is that people don't feel like they're going to be punished, one, for speaking up and saying something that's inconvenient, or two, that people don't feel like they're at risk when other people bring up uh, issues that may imply that they're not performing at their best, right? So that really a culture of dialogue needs to be also married with a culture of learning so we're all right. improving, you know, continuous improvement. So those two things really need to live together because otherwise it, it can get a bit ugly. Do you think that this is something you can do like at scale, like maybe with a smaller organization? I don't know how big PC Media Impact is, but uh, with a smaller organization, let's just say one to 50, definitely can do this. But as we grow and grow and grow that organizations with thousands of employees you know, a lot of people's voices may get lost. Do you think this is something that, you know, leaders of those organizations take seriously? I think it's one of these things back to, you know, an earlier conversation or part of the conversation we were having that, you know, there's a story that we can tell ourselves about this, that it gets too difficult to have conversation when you have too many people. Mm. I was actually speaking with one of my board members this morning, and he and I were saying that we sort of think, you know, American democracy in a little, you know, in a way is in this place, right? Like we, we think it's too difficult to have this conversation with everybody. So we just won't talk and then we'll show up every four years and vote. And we see how that's working out, right? Right. So there are ways. So that every every organization, the structures need to be different. You know, maybe you create pods or teams or, you know, um, affinity groups. I mean, there are all sorts of different uh, methods for creating the spaces for these types of conversations, you know, instituting things like, you know, regular surveys, you know. So again, we're back to this point about, are we being intentional about just checking to see if the stories that are playing in everybody's minds are the same? And, you know, and there are organizations that do this very well uh, at scale uh, with thousands of employees. A, a major change agent are sometimes the gatekeepers of organizations, the talent and acquisition, the people that are hiring, you know, a more diverse work culture, let's say, uh, for this conversation. Um, do you think it's a, a problem that 
our private sector has in terms of hiring people who may not look like them, may not have the same conversations as them, may not have the same upbringing? Definitely. You know, I've, you know, it's been said a lot, um, especially in the past year, that a lot of times when we talk about hiring for culture fit, we're talking about hiring people that are like us, you know, that are grew up sure. in the places we grew up, went to school in the places we went to school, you know, and how that just creates and perpetuates this sort of um, um, homogeneous culture that's not healthy. And, you know, it, and it's not, you know, Kevin, really interestingly enough, just to note, you know, diversity is good for business. And, you know, it's, the data shows it very clearly. Uh, and so it really is something that companies would be wise to invest in. And we see this in the work that we do at PCI Media. Like, you know, we are a really diverse team, including uh, people from, you know, other countries. And it really enriches our thinking and the approach to our work doesn't come without its challenges, but they're good problems to have. Um, but one thing I will say is that having a, not having a diverse HR team, a talent acquisition team is problematic. And one way that, you know, people might be able to get around this is by thinking about a different way of hiring. So do you have a hiring committee where it may, this person may not be your full-time HR person, but in order to diversify the perspectives of the group of people that are selecting people to come into the organization, you know, can we pull to from, from different teams to create a flexible team that's more diverse to push on some of those assumptions? Yeah. Now, here's another complex question. What does a diverse team look like or feel like? Because... You know, I mean, I grew up with people where most of my friends were friends of color, and yet they grew up in the same neighborhood as me, probably made more than my parents, similar experiences. I didn't see them any differently. But if we go into a hiring process, I might be able to relate more to that hiring manager than maybe my friends. So like what, like, I don't know if that makes sense, but what in terms of a diversity would you say is a, is a healthy, diverse organization? You know, I'm so happy you asked this question because I do think that um, it's easy to think about diversity as race only, but really, and you know, we've been doing some amazing work uh, on this um, with the PCI Media Board, in fact, you know, really thinking about a multifaceted view of diversity. So yes, racial diversity is important, uh, but as you point out, it's not the only uh, factor that uh, makes us diverse. There's also gender, there's age, there's geography. You know, I was on a call the other day, so actually, many. my real leaders impact collaborative group. And we were talking about the difference between growing up in Alabama and Southern California and, and how they're just completely different, so right? Different, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, can we begin to, as we get serious about diversity, thinking about the multiple perspectives, there's a uh, difference in ability, right? So physical people with different physical abilities, uh, all of these are diversities that need to be represented uh, as much as possible. And again, you know, when we're making decisions for an organization as leaders, are the people that are influencing that those decisions 
is that group diverse? Have you taken the time to create sort of, you know, a brain trust that can give you the diverse input that you need to make the best decisions? Or Hmm. are you just going to rely on the current structure as it is? You know, this happens to be the team. They happen to have this makeup. So instead of being more intentional about creating that diverse input, just going with the flow. So these are the kinds of things I think, you know, we can really push on in our practice. Misha, you mentioned the data supports it. I hate to put you on the spot here, but like what data specifically are you referring to? I've heard of a couple different examples, and I know you've mentioned the brain trust already, decision-making. What data sticks out to you that supports this theory of more inclusion and diversity? So I cannot remember his name, and I'm going to, but he wrote Diversity at Work. So you can Google his book. He and a, and a whole team, they did this research study around Canadian businesses, actually. Hmm. And they're, every year they give these awards to uh, the most inclusive companies in Canada. They've also started doing some work in the U.S. And their data set bears out time and time again. It's the one I'm most familiar with, uh, that diversity really benefits companies. And, and again, uh, this, this author, whose name just really escapes me in this moment, thinks about diversity in the way that we are talking about, right? That really, ultimately, at the end of the diversity journey, we're talking about individual people and what they can bring to enrich the pool of talent that any organization has. So again, you know, just like we talked about with dialogue, we're not talking about a checklist. We're not talking about quotas. We're talking about being truly inclusive of the many diversities that people bring. Because when, when people can bring them whole, their whole selves to work, you're going to get the most out of them. Mm. You know, when they feel fully integrated, they're going to perform better for the organization. And the organization is going to benefit. Misha, there was a bill, I live in the state of California, speaking of Southern California, and there was a bill that came out that was around diversity around the boards uh, that we had to vote on. Do you think the public sector should be influencing you know, major uh, decisions like this? You know, I have to say that um, I'm not a fan of, of legislated I think I I would prefer that legislative change is a last resort. Mm. And, you know, it just goes back to how can we get to a place where people aren't checking it off a list? Because when people are checking it off a list, then it happens one way. Uh, When you have a community of people that are really bought into this notion that it makes sense for us to diversify ourselves, it's done in a more intentional way that makes sense and is sustainable. So, you know, I'm a black woman who lives in America. So, you know, I am thankful for all of the legislation <laughs> that was put in place, you know, the civil rights legislation, to say the least, women voting, to, you know. So I get sometimes legislation is necessary, right? Sometimes we have to say, okay, we've, we've tried to shift public opinion and we're going to put a stake in the, ground, in the ground and move forward. However, even when those things are in place, I think there does need to be, again, we're back to this, this, narrative support, this helping people to change their perception 
of what this thing is that we're asking them to do so that they do it in the best way possible. So Misha, let's leave our audience with one piece of advice around perspective that they can take away from this conversation today. A well-crafted story and that is well-delivered can change even the most stubborn perspectives. Hmm. A well-crafted story can change even the most stubborn of perspectives. And as we know, folks, the perspective can unleash and unlock so many things, your behavior, your attitude, how you perceive the world and other people, how you wake up in the morning. It's a great Mm -hmm. way to change how you want to live. Now, Misha, with all this in mind, let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? Oh, my goodness. A real leader. My definition. So the last time we were together, I I love this, that this is your closing question. You know, I talked about listening. Um, But today I want to say that my definition of a real leader is somebody who is willing to take a risk on having these uncomfortable conversations. Mm, I love that. I love it. Misha, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I hope you stick around for a few questions. Um, Definitely. Now, tell me more about where people can learn more about TeamSurvive.org. Oh, yes. So Team Survive is our COVID-19 response initiative. Just doing tremendous work all around the world. Again, helping people rethink uh, the way that they're living and ways that they can stay safe and keep their community safe. So check us out at TeamSurvive.org. And if you want to know more about PCI Media in general, please come visit us at PCIMedia.org. Lovely. Misha, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. For Misha Brown, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, take a risk on uncomfortable conversations, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Misha. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Misha Brown. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know by now, all of these episodes are streamed live on our Crowdcast channel and on LinkedIn. So if you want to join these episodes live and ask questions to our guests after the show, all you got to do is follow us on LinkedIn or go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and RSVP for an upcoming episode with another real leader. All right, I'm pulling it up on the site right now. Let's see who we've got coming up on the podcast. Oh, that's right. February 2nd, we have Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence and Focus. On January 26th, just before that, we'll have on Nick Bradley, the host of the Scale Up Your Business podcast. And then back to February, on February 9th, we'll have Seth Goldman, co-founder and CEO of Eat the Change, followed by Melanie Dolbeco, the CEO of Tarani. So if you don't want to miss any of those episodes live for free, go online to realtors.com slash podcast and RSVP for an upcoming interview. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.